Tonight's scripture reading is from Joshua 1, 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Good evening. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Zach Stanton, I'm the worship director at the North Liberty Campus. And uh, it's always great to worship with you all and come down here. I get to come a couple times a year, and uh, I love the community that you guys have here, and I love singing in this room, right? It's really fantastic. Uh, and I know Jason's not here, but I want to just thank him for inviting me to come and preach while he's on sabbatical. And, and it's just a privilege to get to open the word with you tonight. Uh, one of my kids asked me this week if my sermon was going to be funny or boring. Uh, and I, I said, I hope those are not the only two options. So uh, we'll, we'll see. But the message this evening is titled, A Sure Means of Courage. If you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. It will probably come as no surprise to you uh, that C.S. Lewis has some helpful thoughts on courage. This is what he writes in the Screwtape Letters. Courage is not simply one of the virtues but the form of every virtue at the testing point. If Lewis is right, and I think that he is, then courage is for every day of our lives. Courage is not listed as a fruit of the Spirit, but it is embedded in every single one of them. Are you in school? Do you have a job? Are you married? Do you have kids? Do you want to be married or have kids and that just hasn't happened yet? Do you rub shoulders with people that you don't agree with all the time? Do you or does somebody you love struggle with physical or mental health? I can tell you that in many of those areas, my virtue, my character has been at the testing point. And I know that all of you can relate to that as well. So the truth is that we all need courage. Courage isn't just when things are dangerous. Courage is for every day of our lives. 
We're almost at the end of our Living Stone series that we've been going through since the beginning of the year. And this week, we're looking at the passing of the baton from Moses to Joshua. And this is a really important moment in Israel's history. They have finally been given the opportunity to enter the promised land after they've been wandering around in the wilderness for the last 40 years. But Moses is dead. The strong leader who has been guiding them for the last 40 years, who's been, uh, God has used to work miracles on the grandest scale to lead them out of Egypt, uh, to intercede for the people before God when they sinned, who met with God face to face and received his law. Moses is dead. And so now Joshua has to take up the mantle and lead this people into the promised land. And God's charge to Joshua over and over again is to be strong and to be courageous. But God isn't merely telling Joshua to be courageous. He's not just a drill sergeant who's trying to to scare a soldier into a place of willpower and have toughness. Uh, He's not giving Joshua a pep talk. In this passage, God graciously gives Joshua four means for the courage that he will need to lead this people. We're going to look at God's calling, God's promises, God's presence, and God's word. And they are certainly means for courage that apply to our lives every single day. Would you pray with me and would you please pray for me as we begin? Father, I'm so thankful that we can gather as your people. Thank you for this expression of the body of Christ that that is meeting here tonight, that has sung to you and sung your truth, and that we are now opening your word together. And Spirit, we invite you to be at work in our hearts. We ask that you would empower me to speak your words and not my own, and that you would empower us to take your word and apply it to our lives so that we are not hearers only, but we are doers. And we thank you for your presence with us now, and we ask that the rest of this service would bring glory to the name of Jesus, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Courage was a theme that surrounded Joshua's life. This isn't the first time that Joshua has heard these words. This comes up four times in the book of Deuteronomy. Twice in chapter 3, twice in chapter 31, he is told that he needs to be strong and courageous. Why this repeated call to courage for Joshua? Probably because he was afraid. And we don't have to worry, or we don't have to wonder what he was afraid of because these passages spell it out. He's afraid of the nations that he's about to have to go face in battle. Think about this for just a moment from Joshua's perspective. Joshua spent his formative years as a slave making bricks out of mud. He has no military pedigree, And the the Israelite men that he's leading in battle, they're not skilled in battle. They don't have an understanding of military tactics. They spent the last 40 years wandering around in the wilderness and not running war games. And this is not exactly a, a thing that you just kind of learn on the fly, right? You can't watch a few YouTube videos and know how to go into war and win a battle. And not only that, Joshua knows that they will be facing superior technology because the Canaanites have horses and chariots and the Israelites don't. 
So it's no surprise that Joshua fears the nations that he's about to face. Warfare is terrifying, but especially if you're the underdog. But I think there might be another reason that would give Joshua reason to fear. Listen to the closing verses of the book of Deuteronomy. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, who knew the Lord face to face, none like him, for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. You feel the weight of that? That Joshua is stepping into some really massive shoes. Could Joshua lead this people the way that Moses did? And when God says, Moses, my servant is dead, is he thinking in the back of his mind about the fact that Moses is dead because he failed to obey God? And if even Moses, the greatest prophet, failed, would Joshua fail too? So God knows that Joshua is going to need courage to carry out his task. And he gives him that. And he starts with a reaffirmation of Joshua's calling. Verses 1 and 2 say, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. God reaffirms Joshua's calling as the one who is supposed to lead them into the promised land. The theme of calling has come up throughout this Livingstone series. We've seen God come to people who were not seeking him and call them to himself, announce his purposes in their lives, and bless them. We've seen this with Noah, with Abram, we've seen it with Jacob, with Joseph, with Moses. And all of these men blew it at some point. Actually, at several points. But that didn't get in the way of the fact that God still used them to accomplish what he had for their lives. When did God call Joshua? This isn't the first time that we meet Joshua. We first see him in Exodus chapter 17, where he is the one leading Israel in the battle against the Amalekites. And then uh, in chapter 24... Joshua goes up the mountain with Moses as Moses is going to receive instructions on the tabernacle. And then in chapter 33, we see Joshua with Moses as Moses is at the tent of meeting and he's talking with God face to face. And we see him many other times. And then we see him later on in Numbers 27. And this is where God says to Moses, Joshua is the one who is going to take over for you. Joshua is going to lead the people. God says, a man in whom is the spirit. So God has been preparing Joshua for this task for a long time. And now in chapter one of of the book of Joshua, we see that calling reaffirmed right at the beginning. God tells Joshua that he is the man to lead the people. And what follows in the next uh, seven or eight verses, uh, this is a really important place to start. And why might that be? Because it shows that Joshua's calling is not conditional. It doesn't matter initially whether or not 
Joshua is already strong and courageous. God is not waiting for Joshua to prove his courage before he says, okay, now you can do this. Rather, Joshua can take courage in the fact that God has called him to this task. If we look at this passage as a whole, we see that it has a gospel shape. God's call followed by God empowering the one he is called to do what he's been called. So this is a display of God's grace. What about our calling? You and I are probably not going to be called to lead a nation or, or something of that scale, but God calls all of us just the same. And in the Bible, when it speaks of calling, it's always speaking of God's saving call on our lives. But it's also a call to action. We're not called to passivity. We are called to fruitfulness. When we respond to God's call to repent and to believe, God doesn't wait for us uh, to prove ourselves and to stop sinning before he starts to use us. God calls us immediately to start following him in obedience. So he can and will use us before we stop fighting with our spouse or yelling at our kids or looking at porn or whatever vice is that we're, we're wrestling with every day, God calls us to start walking with him in fruitfulness immediately. And he empowers us to do that. We're called to fruitfulness. We're called to service. We're called to walk every day in Jesus's steps. And the good news is that God's calling on our life doesn't depend on us. He is the initiator. He is the one who has come to us in spite of ourselves. And that is a bedrock for our lives. And that has to be the starting point for our courage. After assuring Joshua that he has been divinely called to this task, God starts to put some more flesh on the bones. If all God did was tell Joshua that he had picked him to be the captain of his team and then says, you got this, then Joshua would probably have wanted more assurance than that. He doesn't need cheerleading. And God did give him more than that. God gave him substantial promises of success as he carried out his calling. Look at verse three. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. God says, all the land that you walk across is yours. Verse five says, no man shall be able to stand before you. This recalls Moses's words to Israel at Joshua's commissioning back in Deuteronomy 31. Listen to what Moses said there. The Lord, your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites and to their land when he destroyed them. God promises that the Canaanite kings don't stand a chance because God is the one who's going to accomplish this. Verse six is another promise. You shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers. Joshua's success is assured. He will accomplish the task that God has sent him to do. They will, as a nation, settle in the land of Canaan. And that is something that they can take to the bank. 
And Joshua has context because Joshua has seen God do what he said he would do. Joshua knows that these aren't empty promises. He watched God deliver Israel from Egypt and all of the crazy things that had to take place for that to happen, the plagues, the pillar of fire leading the people, the parting of the Red Sea, the drowning of the Egyptian army, how God provided food and water for an entire nation in the desert. So Joshua knows that these are not empty promises. Remembering how God has kept his promises is a powerful way for us to bolster our courage. God often called his people to remember what he had done. He does this a lot of times in scripture. As a matter of fact, this happens in Joshua chapter four. So if you would turn ahead to Joshua chapter four in your Bible, this is where the people are now moving into the land. And in order to get into Canaan, they have to cross over the Jordan River. The problem was the Jordan is currently at flood stage. So this is not an easy thing for them to do. So God caused the waters to part, just like he had done at the Red Sea. And after the people finished crossing through, before the waters recede, God says, send 12 men into the riverbed, one from each tribe, and get a stone and bring it out. And I want you to build a monument. And listen to what he says in verse 6. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Do you have moments in your life that you look back on when God worked and did something that was powerful, that demonstrated his hand? I know I do like the time that God orchestrated for me to go to graduate school, which there were a string of events that had to happen that there's no way I could have made all of those things happen. Or when God opened the door for me to come and teach here at the University of Iowa, when I thought I was going to be spending another year working multiple part-time jobs and applying to who knows how many other full-time academic jobs, but God opened this door. And there are many other things. And I know you have things as well. You remember what God has done for you. And when we remember how God has worked in our life, that gives us courage to continue walking with him and facing hard things in the present. But we don't just have our own past experiences or even the experiences of others. We have promises in God's word as well. Let's look at a small but a powerful sampling of some promises of God. Our salvation is secure in Christ. God won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle, but will provide a way of escape. Doesn't say that he won't give us more than we can handle. It just says that he'll provide the grace that we need to escape intense temptation. God will complete the work he has started in us. Jesus will come again. And we will experience eternal rest. Those may feel like big, distant, theoretical promises. And they're big, but these are not distant or theoretical. These are promises that we need to hang on to every day of our lives as we walk out our faith and courage. After affirming Joshua's calling, 
and promising success to him, God gives Joshua his greatest assurance yet. Look at verse 5. This is back in Joshua chapter 1. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Verse 9 says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God had already made this promise back in Deuteronomy 31, but he doubles down on it here. It's the last thing that God says to Joshua in his charge to him. And this is a really good way of summarizing why Joshua doesn't need to be afraid. And this is a significant promise in light of what happened back in Exodus 32 and 33. Remember the golden calf incident? After that, God said, I am done with this people, Moses. I'm just going to wipe them out. We're going to start over with you. And so then Moses, he intercedes for the people. He comes before the Lord and, and pleads for them. And then God says, all right, you know what? You can go ahead and take the people into the land, the stiff-necked people, but I'm not going with you because I know if I do, I'm going to destroy them. Listen to what Moses says to God in Exodus 33:15. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses understood the significance of God's presence with them. He knew that there was no reason for them to go into the land if God is not with them because God is what made them who they were. And do you think that Joshua, now that Moses is gone, might be doubting the continued presence of God? Would God change his mind? But God wants to leave no doubt in Joshua's mind. God has reaffirmed his call in Joshua's life. He's promised his success against the Canaanite kings, and he has assured him that he's not going to leave him. But there's one more means of courage that God gives to Joshua, one that on the surface we might just think of as another command. It's just another part of the charge that Joshua has to keep. And it is that, but it's more. Look at verses 7 and 8. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. God did not give his law as a burden to Israel. It's for their good. In these verses, we see that it's another pillar in the structure. It's another means of courage for Joshua as he fulfills this calling. And so this is because with God's word, they can know the right way to go. They can know God's will for them. They can enjoy the fruitfulness and the blessing that God intends to give to them. And the word in this passage for law is the Hebrew word 
Torah. And this is probably familiar to many of you because we know the first five books of the Bible as the Torah. But the Torah, the word Torah has other meanings. And uh, in addition to meaning law, it can mean direction or instruction. It can refer to how God's word teaches wisdom and reminds us of who God is and what he's done. It shows God's plan for redeeming a people to himself and for redeeming relationships between his people, his image bearers. There are two particular exhortations here that we need to focus on. Meditation and obedience. Verse 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. What exactly is meditation? The Hebrew word here can mean to mutter or to murmur. And this is not the kind of muttering you do under your breath when you're annoyed or frustrated about something. But this is speaking God's word to yourself. This is turning it over in your minds, chewing on God's word. It's allowing it to slowly seep into you into your heart, into your mind. And this isn't just reading scripture or memorizing it because both of those things are are things we can do mindlessly. But meditation is never mindless. It's an all-absorbing process. And God says that we must do this day and night. The truth is we quickly forget God's word. There are a thousand times a day when I just resort back to my default mode and I start handling things according to my own wisdom. I'm especially tempted to do this in parenting where it's easy for me to become impatient and harsh, uh, even passive with my kids when I, when I allow my fears to, to come in and overwhelm me. So I end up spending more time worrying about them and worrying about my parenting than I spend praying. And that's not helpful to them or to me. I need to set God's truth before me all the time and be reminded of who he is, who I am, who he's called me to be and what he's called me to do. And you need to do the same every day, throughout the day. So we have to meditate day and night. This is essentially what Deuteronomy 6 verses 6 and 7 tell us. This is a passage you're probably familiar with, but you may not think of it as a passage about meditation, but I think that's what this is. It says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That is not allowing the book of the law to depart from your mouth. That is meditating day and night. The other thing that this passage tells us about meditating is that it's not necessarily something we do alone. This is something we do with others. We do this with our family. We do this with our church community. One of my favorite things about the weekly meeting that I have with my community group is the group meditation that we do. I love hearing what other people have been thinking about in God's word throughout the week. And that enriches my understanding of the word and causes me to see new things or think new things about the word that I hadn't really considered before. Another reason we need to meditate day and night is because of the reality 
that if we want to master something, we have to devote a lot of time and energy to it. I could give all kinds of examples here, but the one I'm most familiar with is music, so I'm going to to go with that. How many of you took music lessons when you were growing up? Okay, so you're all familiar with the agony of practice. There is a popular quote that's been attributed to a number of famous musicians from the early 20th century that goes something like this. If I take one day off from practicing, I can tell. If I take two days off, the music critics can tell. And if I take three days off, the audience can tell. Even when a musician has reached a level of absolute mastery, they don't stop practicing. And this isn't just maintenance work to, to get your muscles continuing to move. This is, uh, this is work of trying to, to learn new things, to discover new insights, to explore new ways of performing and playing music, maybe that you've played many times before. And they do this because they love music. And this is why we meditate. We will never exhaust the depths of God's word. And as we meditate day and night, our love for God's word will continue to grow. God's word has to be the background noise of our lives. There's one more reason that we must meditate on God's word. John chapter one tells us that the word became flesh. Hebrews one tells us that God has spoken most clearly through his son. And in Luke chapter 24, Jesus does a quick Bible study with a couple of his disciples as they're walking on the road to Emmaus. And he, sh- he shows them how all of the scripture, the Old Testament scripture, is pointing to him. And so we meditate on God's word because it shows us more of Jesus. We meditate to know him better. We have to see all of scripture in light of him, Old Testament or New Testament. I want to give you just a few practical thoughts on how to meditate. Read the passage out loud. Repeat phrases that stick out to you, whether those are encouraging or confusing. Pray through the passage. Listen to someone else read the passage. You can use a Bible app for this. Write the passage down. Write down questions about the passage even questions you think you already know the answer to. And see if your questions lead to other questions. Do some word studies in the original language and see what color that adds to the passage. Listen to a sermon or two on the passage. Listen to somebody else's deep meditation on the same passage. Memorize the passage. I like this as a later step because memorizing is something we can easily do mindlessly. But it's also easier to memorize if we have some understanding of what it is that we're memorizing. But God is not interested in a kind of meditation that merely leads to more knowledge. He calls us to obedience. Andrew helpfully unpacked this a couple weeks ago. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to to get on our website and listen to that sermon. But look back at verse 8. Why does God say that they need to meditate day and night? It says, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. The law doesn't do any good if it's not obeyed. 
We can't experience the spiritual fruitfulness or the relational wholeness that God has called us to if we're not living out the word he's given us. And it's interesting that in Deuteronomy 11.8, God says to Israel that keeping his commandments is connected to having the strength to take the land that they're about to go get. And this is the same Hebrew word for strong that we've seen in all these passages, be strong and courageous. So God is saying that obeying his word is actually a source of strength for his people. And God says that meditating on and keeping his Torah assures success and prosperity. Psalm 1 is a beautiful meditation on meditation and probably a meditation on this very passage. It gives us a picture of what it's like for someone who walks with God and his word. They are like a tree that is planted by a stream of water, constantly nourished, yielding its fruit, healthy. In effect, God is saying to Israel, do you want to be a prosperous nation? Then don't worship the idols of the surrounding nations. And don't worship the idols of your heart, but worship me alone. And he says, do you want to be a prosperous community? Then love your neighbor and treat them with dignity and respect. Honor your parents. Don't be partial to anyone, rich or poor. Be kind to those who are at odds with you and be generous to those who are in need. In his word, in his law, God has shown us how to enjoy prosperity. I want to be careful here, though, because this is not legalism, where how well we obey correlates with how prosperous we are. I certainly used to think that this is how it worked, right? If I obey God well, he's going to make things go well for me. But God is not giving his people a prosperity gospel. Meditation and obedience are not hoops that we jump through to get what we want. So after you spend some time meditating, I wouldn't recommend going out and buying a lottery ticket, right? There's no guarantee that's going to work out for you because prosperity is not necessarily material. It could be. But the kind of prosperity that God guarantees us is a settled assurance of his love, of our relationship with him. It is a deep rootedness in God and his people. It is a profound hope in the face of fear. And very likely, it's relational peace with those around us as we learn to love the way that God has taught us to love. So what do you think? What is your reaction to all of this? If you're like me, then you have two simultaneous reactions. The first is, this is great. God has given me clear steps to follow if I want to be courageous. I need to remember that he has called me and that his calling is not dependent on me. That he's made promises to me that will encourage me when I'm, when I'm fearful. And he's assured me of his presence at all times. And he's given me his word, which provides wisdom and truth. But my second reaction is this. This is hard. This is impossible. I don't always believe God's promises. I don't always feel his presence. I don't always want to meditate on his word. And even when I do, I can't perfectly obey it. The Israelites sure couldn't. But the gospel teaches us that there is grace when we stumble. 
and all of us stumble in fear. But when we fall, Jesus lifts us up again and again by his grace. I want to close by looking at the courage of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and see how his courage is not only inspiration for our courage, but it is the final means of our courage. Remember Lewis's comments that we started with, that courage is the form of every virtue at the testing point? In the garden, Jesus is at the testing point. This is what he prays. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. John 18.4 says that when the posse came to arrest Jesus, Jesus already knew everything that was going to happen to him. He knew that he was going to be beaten. He knew that he was going to have the flesh whipped off of his back. He knew that he was going to be nailed to a cross and that he would die of blood loss and asphyxiation. And worse than that, he knew that he would bear the sin of the world, yours, mine, and that he would bear the wrath of his father. But Jesus doesn't cower. How does he finish that prayer? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus knows that his father's will is perfect. Jesus know why, he knows why he came. And he knows what he has to do in order to redeem a people for himself. So as the mob approaches, he says to his disciples, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He doesn't run, but he goes and meets them. One of the biggest differences between our testing and Jesus's is starkly revealed when Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember God's promise to Joshua to be with him and to never leave him or forsake him? Jesus, at the height of his agony, knew what it felt like to be forsaken by God. When he became sin for us and received the just punishment of our sin because we couldn't keep the law, he knew an agony that we cannot imagine and we will never experience if we are in Christ. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? David certainly did when he wrote Psalm 22, which is what Jesus is quoting. Have you ever asked God why he abandoned you? I know I have. But do we realize that if we are in Christ, we can never experience forsakenness by God? That is an incredible means of courage. And what were Jesus' last words before he ascended to heaven? Remember the end of the Great Commission? He says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is making an an emphatic statement to his disciples as he goes to heaven. They think that they're being left alone. But Jesus makes the same promise to them that God had made to Joshua. I will be with you always. The disciples' mission is very different from Joshua's, but it is no less daunting. And they're all going to suffer a much worse fate than Joshua did in the end. But they're able to carry out their mission because their courage is founded on the fact that they know this is what they're called to. 
And it's founded on the fact that Jesus has made promises to them. It's founded on the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's founded on the words that Jesus has spoken to them. Primarily, their courage was founded on Jesus' death and his resurrection. And this is where we find our courage too. There will be a lot of days when we feel weak and fearful, but Jesus can sympathize with our weakness. He had to exercise courage just like we do. And his grace empowers us daily to live courageously. And he will continue to pour out grace upon grace as we grow in courage. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this might be a fairly disappointing message. Probably was boring. This passage doesn't seem to have a lot of practical advice for conquering fear. But let me encourage you to consider Jesus. Consider that he came to bear your sin on the cross, that Jesus came to make you new. And he came not only to give you eternal life, but so that you could live out this life as part of his kingdom and that you could be an ambassador of his grace and his love to all of those who are around you. And you can respond to his call to repent of sin and believe in Jesus. And as you begin to walk with him by his spirit, you will find that the means of courage that God gave to Joshua are means of courage for you that will provide hope and help and strength. As we pray, I'd like to invite Tabitha and Emma and Kathleen back up. They're going to lead us in a song of response. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are thankful that you have gone to the cross for us. We are thankful for the surety of your promises, for the call that you have given to all. We're thankful for your word that you've shown us who you are. And we're thankful for your presence with us. God, we ask that you would help us to to take these things from your word and have the wisdom by your spirit to walk this out. Lord, there are people here this evening that are fearful. And maybe those fears are small. Maybe they are huge. But we face fears that are daunting. And we cannot face them on our own. Lord, I pray for those who are not facing fear right now, but will in the future, that you would help them to remember the truth from this passage that you have given them. We pray that we would live this out to the glory of Jesus this week. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.